and he passed that very drawing across the table and I took and folded it up, put it in my pocket and woke up the next morning with a horrible hangover. <laughs> and I said, shit, I folded up a Donald Trump drawing. <laughs> print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Hilsenbrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the field of print media and multiples. Hello, Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your practice since 1997. If you are looking to add some pizzazz to your practice, check out their new line of additive glitter. Add a sprinkle of their additive glitter to any Speedball fabric screen printing ink to bring a touch of shimmer to your next design. This glitter additive can be used in nearly any ratio, whether your sparkling vision is more subtle or dripping with scintillating shine. Check out the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of paper Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Robert Arbor, the founder of Arbor & Sons Editions in Marfa, Texas. We recorded this episode on-site in Robert's studio in this iconic art town. We talk about his journey to printmaking after working in a car design studio in Detroit, going to Tamarind in the 1970s, making motorcycles that go very, very fast, and printing, collaborating, and drinking with Donald Judd. So, without further ado, sit back, Relax and prepare to get minimal, or was it maximal, with Robert Arbor. Hi, Robert. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for letting me pop into your shop here in Marfa on a busy Agave Fest weekend <laughs> to have a chat about printmaking. And so before we get started, I'd like to just invite you to introduce yourself by saying who you are, where you are, what you do. Robert Arbor. I uh, went to the University of New Mexico and undergraduate in sculpture and then graduate school there as well. And then was accepted into the Tamron Institute, which I finished and got my TMP. Tamron, I would say, is the hardest thing I've ever done. Mm. And I've done uh, a lot of hard things. I have got motorcycles that go incredibly fast. I was in the military in a nuclear submarine. I've done a lot of stuff, but Tamron was really hard. But I did make it, and it's what gave me the background to do what I do now. So, and that was, wow, that was probably 1973, I believe, is when I finished. And ever since, I guess it's whatever that is, 40-some years, I've been doing it. Yeah. And my, I had a shop in New Mexico, in Alameda, in the North Valley of Albuquerque, a little unincorporated area called Alameda, right on the Rio Grande. 
which was beautiful. Oh, and then a rich guy came by who was buying up all the land around it. And uh, he wanted our place. And we had three acres. And I, I said, I can't be bought. Turns out I was wrong. <laughs> so we sold it, bought 20 acres in Santa Fe and built a house and then bought this building that we're in right now, which is an old movie theater simultaneously from the rich guy's money. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So if we could go back a little bit, where did you grow up and what role was art playing in that part of your life? Um, I was born in Detroit, which I, I went to high school there. Couldn't wait to leave. But then I came back after I was in the Navy and I, I, was, I got a job because a buddy of mine was doing it as a car designer, auto designer in Detroit. But I was in a design studio and what I did in the design studio was a clay modeler. So we would make full-size cars out of plasticine, out of clay. And I was one of the modelers. And it was really good pay. And, but I decided as soon as I had, and I had the figure, X number of dollars in the bank, I was quitting. Well, I got that figure and about $5 beyond it when I said <laughs> goodbye. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a great job. We did show cars, which was a lot different. A lot of, there were a lot of clay modelers that did production cars, which was kind of boring. And, and my, but the show cars were like sort of the latest stuff. And uh, it was like the, the great, I mean, the, the craziest, wildest actual car designers were in this studio but there were was us and you would just smear on clay and then model it down to what they like so that's how and then that it was that was sort of the root of me getting a degree in sculpture at mm. New Mexico and so that sort of bridge between working with these functional works of art, like these cars and the sculpting and that sort of expression, and then to fine art. How did that happen for you? Were you someone who went to museums? Were you someone who admired artists? Where did that jump go? Well, it was definitely a, a jump. And indeed, I, I would never consider, but it's the definition of art, but I wouldn't really consider a clay model car or any automobile, well, we could get a beautiful Ferrari. Oh, <laughs> one of my motorcycles. To me, they're art. Yeah. It is, it is using your word, jump. It was like right there. But even as when I was in Detroit at the design studios, I would, it, was, it was very close to the Detroit Museum. So I would go often, which was right across Woodward Avenue, and spend time there. And just, so it was sort of self-taught of, classic art and it was a decent museum so then i knew like when i got this x number of dollars in the bank that i wanted to so i applied for the to the university of new mexico and like i just said i, I got essentially three degrees from there and so why the university of new mexico the reason was when i first when i left detroit i one of my buddies was actually that i left a little a little bit of education out. I studied philosophy uh, with this at this Jesuit university, 
And I did not like it that much. My parents <laughs> sent me there. And what I refer to is the Jesuits teach you to think. Mm-hmm. And after they taught me to think, I thought, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're brilliant, but I didn't. It wasn't my cup of tea. Yeah. Where was that college? Cleveland. Okay. John yeah. Curry University. Yeah. So my buddy that was at, at John Carroll, who was really good, good friends of mine. And he was, he drew a lot. And so he moved to Taos in a hippie commune, which, so I went out to visit him and stayed and stayed with him. He had this wonderful, funky, funky house. And that was Taos. And then University of New Mexico was Albuquerque, which is like, what, 150 miles away. So I applied to University of New Mexico and studied sculpture as as an undergraduate degree. And I worked with a really great professor. His name was Charles Maddox, who um, is no longer, I'm sure he's no longer alive, but he was the wildest man I think I've ever met. And I came from the hippie communes and Charles Maddox was just wonderful. And he came out of the WPA. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. his age. Get an idea of how old Charles Maddox was. But he was crazier than any student. You know, you think of a wild, crazy student. Charles Maddox, who was at that time, I'm sure, mid-50s or 60s, and we were 20. And he would out-drink any of us. He would outplay any of us. He was, he was great. So he was sort of my hero. And he was a great sculptor. And I did, ended up after I opened my, my shop, I did a few prints for him. Three-dimensional prints, actually. And so... When did printmaking come into your story if you're there for sculpture? I I got to know Tamron by going over there. It was a block away from the art department, art building. And I went over there to hang out and got to know some of the people. And I took a couple of classes in printmaking and loved it. And that was, it got injected in me. Mm. I feel like I meet a lot of artists who have sculpture printmaking. Mm overlaps. And I'm wondering if it has to do with, at least in your experience, a kind of almost construction sort of thinking, where you're sort of building things up a little bit, and you have to be very process-oriented, and you also need to be artistic as well as logistic about how you go at it. I like those words, artistic and logistic. Yeah. I'd say that's a good description of it. I mean, it is... I mean, with having the equipment, printing presses and stones and all of that stuff is very akin, I think, to print, I mean, to sculpture. And I loved it. I mean, I taught myself, I ended up actually taking a few classes, but taught myself to weld and just loved it. And so you decided to go to Tamarind, which you, did Tamarind was even there when you first went to UNM? Probably not. Yeah, you just happened to be a Pretty much the best place you could be. Yeah. yeah. You, you nailed it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And so after graduation, what came after that? When I graduated, which was, like I said earlier, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. And part of, I mean, maybe I'm diverting here a bit, diverging a bit. The reason, I mean, I can do, I mean, if I, if I spent three months, three months, which is what we did, on a nuclear submarine, submerged, never seeing the sun for three months. Oh, my God. I could do that. Yeah. I did do that for a couple of years. I could do anything. But Tamron was really hard because 
I understand they've changed it, but at that time they only took four students a year and they it was a class of four and only two, I believe, finished. I mean, you could drop out, of course, but, you know, if you keep going. And it, the problem was it was super competitive. So mm. you got four students and there, there's only a couple of slots, we'll say, use that word, that, to get into. And that, to me, wasn't the way. It should be a, 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 a collaboration, a companionship, something where, okay, sure, if there's only going to be two get their degree. But I understand that they've changed that, which I think is good. So it just was kind of like the, the high pressure for those years was really what made it the difficult Not situation? so much that. I mean, there was a lot of pressure. You know, you would get an assignment that had to be at, in the afternoon, it had to be ready in the morning. But that that's okay. I could deal with that. It's like, I'm going to make it and you're not. Mm. That's <laughs> I, I, I know you got the edit button. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you wouldn't you wouldn't be the first nor the last print friend to drop the f bomb on the podcast. But then a real advocate that I actually didn't make it in the in the beginning. There was a guy. The director was Clinton Adams, who was difficult. Mm. <laughs> he was an academic historian. I mean, he came out of Tamarind, L.A., which is where it started in L.A. But he, I, we went kind of crosswise, uh, and it was unfortunate. But uh, so I didn't actually finish. But then when I finished, I mean, I finished the two years. I didn't get my TNP. But then he left, may have died. But, uh, Marge Devon was then the new director, and she's wonderful. And she said, can we have lunch? And I said, sure. Uh, and she said, you, 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 that wasn't right that you mm. didn't get your TMP, and I'm going to give it to you. Oh. So that's how I actually got it. Oh, I love that. Yeah. It's like you got your, your honorary doctorate, yeah. you know, after <laughs> you realized you'd been, you'd been wronged. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I did finish the two years. I finished all my assignments. I did all of that. It's just what actually, if you want to know what went crosswise between me and Clinton Adams. Yeah. Well, there was a show at the university, University of New Mexico Art Museum. And it was called, a, it was a trunk show or they had galleries would come and put up stuff and it was for sale. And I went over there with my buddy, one of the guys at Chris Cordes who was in my class at Tamron, we went over there and there were these very cool 19th century etchings. Max Klinger. Oh, yeah. Portfolio. And they were like 20 bucks a piece. You had to buy the whole portfolio. So Chris and I went together because we didn't have money back then, but we bought the portfolio, but it didn't amount to a whole lot of money. And then we broke it up, which was too bad. He got half, I got half. And Clinton Adams was just outraged that that would, he said, that should be in the museum. And I think it should be in the museum, but we bought it. You didn't move fast enough. (laughs) And I still have them, actually, my portion of it. And it's been an inspiration. The, The actual portfolio 
cover used as sort of an example for a couple of other portfolios that I've made. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that's, I feel like speaking of philosophy, I feel like that's a philosophical problem. You know, like what, where do great works of art belong? And like, what is our objective what am I trying to say? Like obligation to them, you know, which I don't really know the answer to, you know? Yeah. I mean, they don't have to be in a public place. It could be in a private place, but to be enjoyed, they can't be put, yeah. they shouldn't be put in storage. I which agree. Is where so much art is, stu is stuck away in the vaults. And at least it's safe, it's safekeeping, but it's, there's no eyes on it to, mm -hmm. to speak of. So. Yeah, it's not what it was created for. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think it's cool you know Max Glean or know of. Oh, yeah. And well, I, I worked at Davidson Galleries in Seattle. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had work from 16th century all the way through contemporary art. And so we had a few Max Clingers come through yeah. in my time there, and they're yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have one framed at our house, and it's... Go by in the portfolio. I've forgotten how many, like 14, 15 images in the portfolio, and it's a story mm -hmm. actually. It's a long, no, 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 but whatever. <clears throat> and it's, I've got one of them in there. I, I look at it often, yeah. You know, I've got Bruce Nowlands on one wall, <laughs> <and Max Peter laughs> on the other, but yeah, I have equal respect in my for from me, and so. After Tamarind, you you survived. You got your <laughs> your TMP so that you were robbed. You're you're robbed from. And then what comes after that? You're you're out in the world, a, a newly minted print expert. Right. I we had in the North Valley of Albuquerque, which is where I I lived when I went to UNM. I went to graduate undergraduate school. We rented this place. Uh, when I first moved to Albuquerque, I was looking for a place to rent and found this place through going to the local bar and saying, hey, do you have any place to rent? And this guy said, yeah, try the house down. It was at the end of 4th Street. If any, you know. And I ended up, it wasn't for, for rent, but I ended up finding the owner who lived there for like two generations really classic old adobe on three acres and it was all irrigated there's the irrigation ditches which were lovely mm. um uh so we rented that for 50 bucks a month <laughs> and it had an outhouse and valerie cooked on a wood-burning stove but it was okay because I came out of Taos hippiedom, so I knew how to do that, and I converted her to a hippie. <laughs> <laughs> how did you two meet? At UNM. She has an undergraduate degree there. Oh, lovely. Yeah. 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 I could even tell you how we met. Please. Okay. Charles Maddox, who I mentioned, a sculpture guy, he would have these... He would take cla a class of like five, six, eight people to this place called the Black Hole in Santa Fe, which was part of, La not part of Los Alamos, but it was up in, in Los Alamos. Yeah. yeah. And they had all these used things from the labs and you could, you could buy them. So the only thing is that, and it was very cool. That was actually the, the daughter of uh, Grotheus was the name and Barbara Grothius is still around in Albuquerque. 
So there's all this stuff from the nuclear labs that you could buy. It was like good sculpture materials. <laughs> so I bought a ton of stuff up there. But there was, he was cool. The guy that ran it had a Geiger counter. That, so if you bought a chair, he would run at the Geiger counter. <laughs> so Valerie was in one of the trips to Los Alamos, and I was in it, and I went, hey. Yeah. <laughs> and then you'll be celebrating 50-year wedding anniversary yes. here in the studio yes. in a couple weeks, right? Yes, exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. Did we do that? <laughs> you're gonna have to come up with your speech where you let everyone know the secrets we do. We yeah do. and so tell me about coming to marfa well i came down here as a tourist i mean chinati was established this was 19 late 80s i think but i had to i was i had to go to houston so i was driving to houston and i thought well i'll just stop in there and I was very fortunate to meet, they didn't have like set up tours like they've got now where you would go and get in a group and you're in a tour and you'd have a tour guide. It wasn't, it was early in their, their operation, but they, I ended up being there and this young lady came by and said, you want to look around? And I, I said, yeah. She said, jump in. It's, they had a beat-up old Suburban that she was driving, and she drove around the grounds of Chinani and showing me some of the stuff that was already finished, the Kavakov. And then while we were driving around, she asked me what I did, and I said, I'm a printmaker. And she said, oh, yeah? Well, who have you printed for? And I said, Bruce Nauman. And she said, well, Don has always wanted to set up a print shop. And oh. I put my arm up and said... Yes. Let me help. That's so, so that's casual. Just Dawn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's amazing. And so it was kind of right place, right time. Right. Exactly. You know, is what it sounds like. So, and of course, Dawn was Donald Judd, for those of us listening who maybe don't know the, the history of Marfa. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And so what came after that? Well, uh, I, he, he wanted to... And he's always, and it's in his writings about having a print shop that he would invite. Chinati, the way Chinati is set up, that Judd invited his buddies to exhibit at Chinati in permanent exhibits like Kavakov and Flavin, and all of them were his friends that he invited to do an installation, permanent installation. And this, there was a parallel idea to have a print shop where mm. he would invite his buddies and friends or people he admired to do prints. Unfortunately, we got it set up, ordered a press from Talkage, and it was shortly thereafter that he died. Mm. So it just, the shop, we got a building, I made a bunch of tables and, and heat. <laughs> we got a building, that's quite the phrase. <laughs> there was, there were, there's 30 some buildings, I think, on the grounds of Chinati. And he said, pick out a building. It's okay. not I something you a, hear too often in your life. <laughs> um, the building that I spied that I liked was it was vacant, empty. It wasn't really derelict. I mean, it was a it was a substantial building. I so I picked that, and it was a chicken coop for the military base there because they had well, I don't know how many soldiers lived there in their barracks. And he said no. I said, oh, that building out there would be make a good print shop. And he said, no, I got a better one. So 
I followed him, and he had a space picked out for him. But we did set it all up, and he died shortly after. Mm. And so it never, we did a few things in there, and but it never really happened. Yeah. But I knew, and then I fell in love with, with Martha and said, this is where I want to be. And that's when the rich guy wanted to buy our house in Alameda. So it was good timing on all yeah. counts, yeah. yeah. So after Don passed, that momentum just tapered out a little bit? Was that sort of how it went? The print shop, it certainly did. And then I guess I could continue on while Don was still at Don. <laughs> he, actually, I'll back up a little bit. That, yeah. A, a little story that I got, that I left out, which is kind of cool. And it's something I'll always remember. So it was, I, they asked me to make a presentation to the board of directors of Chinati about the print shop. And I, I did a bunch of homework about the proper ventilation, the proper, the equipment needed and the supplies needed. And so I went to one of the buildings where there was a big table and each of the board members and the administration were sitting there with yellow, <clears throat> yellow legal pads and a pen. They were all, it was like this. And I was at the, at the end of the table. Other people gave presentations for other things, but so I gave this whole lowdown about what it would take to set up a print shop. And so I did this. I mean, like I said, really recent. I mean, the way I had done it for my shops is just when I needed a bearing or gear, I'd just go buy it. I, mean, mm -hmm. I wouldn't, or colors, ink. So I wouldn't like do this ahead of time. So we, so I gave this presentation and I had my best cowboy shirt on. And uh, so I finished and they said, and I, there wasn't one question, no expressions. And this, there were maybe eight, nine members at this, at the table. And I was thinking, this is not going very well. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the, they said, thank you. I got up and Judd looked over and he was at the other end of the table. He said, nice belt buckle. <laughs> and shortly thereafter, they sent the amount of money I needed to set up. Oh, man, that sounds so nerve-wracking. Just this idea of all these, like, very serious money very people serious. staring at you or you're trying to make a case for your print shop. <laughs> it was. It was. I mean, I was kind of nervous. I don't do that kind of thing very often. And, uh, but it all happened. Yeah, absolutely. And so... You were able to do some work with Don before he passed. Can yes. you tell us about that? Yes. I mean, after this, at this time, I did one, a litho in their repair, which was called, we referred to, he didn't have titles for anything. Mm -hmm. they're, they're numbers. And there's a catalog called Showman. And Showman has a catalog number. So those prints are referred to certain numbers. It's like Kershaw, if you're a Bach, it's a Bach, bronze, whoever. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, I'll, uh, we did one litho, and it was for the, and the name that we use, I referred to it as the Fort Worth Project. So the Fort Worth Museum commissioned Judd to do a print, and I did that, as a, and it was a litho. And then shortly thereafter, he came up with this idea for these woodcuts. So he did these drawings and he, 
it's a funny thing to see the drawings. You will, you kind of would maybe. Well, I want don't want to put this on tape forever. <laughs> you would kind of shrug because they yeah. weren't renderings; they were diagrams. So he did a very specific diagrams of each of these prints that they all are based on a 60 by 80 centimeter exterior rectangle and a 60 by 40 centimeter interior rectangle and then divide it with these various lines. So this was all written out and little sketches, very simple pencil sketches. And so it was, it was done in the metric system. And I didn't, being a dumb American, I didn't know what the <laughs> metric system was. So I went out and bought some metric graph paper to lay it out because I carved the block. They're carved from mahogany. And so I got this graph paper, laid it out to get five millimeter line divided by th- that the 60 centimeter would be divided in thirds. And all of a sudden the metric system was so, I realized, how beautiful it was because you can take 60 centimeters and part of the the directions were divided in thirds. So you take 60 centimeters divided in thirds, it's like easy. Mm -hmm. But if you had 15 and seven eighths and had it to be divided in thirds, it could be done, but it would be like, (laughs) so that's how it was. And then the colors he wrote, it was, it was written just tell him, he told me written by written note of the colors. And it was cadmium red light, alizarin crimson, and the 10 colors. But in printmaking, it's a different vocabulary, or it could be even be a number of a mm-hmm. color of an ink. So I didn't know what alizarin crimson was because it's not my vocabulary. So I went to the art supply store, got a tube of alizarin crimson, and then I can match colors pretty well. So I got all of them from based on oil paints. And so when I finally finished the proofs, he looked at them and he said, you got them all right except cadmium red light, which is sort of a, a very important color to him. And he said, come with me. So we went over to the block, which is here in Marfa. It's part of the Judd Foundation. It's like the main thing. It's where he lived. and. And it's where his library is, which has 30,000 volumes in it. I understand that number. I might be wrong. And so I followed him and he went, there's a little storage room in the back of the library. And he he had stacks and stacks of boxes of four ounce or three ounce tubes of cadmium red light. No, well, first he said, well, you got the cadmium red light off. All the other colors were right. And so he said, match it to this. Well, it turned out, and I can't remember exactly, he liked Grumbacher, and I had mixed it to Windsor Newton. But he had bought all this cadmium red light because that was at the time when they outlawed cadmium because it was a toxic metal. So he said, "Ah, I'm going to buy every bit of cadmium red light in the world (laughs) or whatever he could buy. And so, so he handed me a tube of this. Uh, and he said, match it to this, which I did. So he's had an archive of the good stuff. He yeah. had the good stuff in the back room. <laughs> so then the story goes on. Uh, I proofed it. And uh, here comes the train. Oh, this is perfect ambiance, I feel like, for <laughs> recording in Marfa. In the story. Yeah. So I proofed it. I had him on the wall. And like this was actually 
pre to the him saying I had the cadmium red light off a little bit. Uh, so he's looking at him and he had provided the paper. He bought the paper in Korea and Seoul while he was there. And he, that was gorgeous paper. It was one meter by two meters. So it's like six feet by three feet sheets. Oh, wow. It was just beautiful handmade paper. So, so he said, this is what I want you to proof on or print on. So I did. And we're standing and finished the proofs. We had them up on the wall and we're looking at them and we're looking and there were little brown spots on, mm. on the paper. And it, we found out later, but I was looking at it and what little brown spots are, it's called foxing. Mm -hmm. And foxing is a mold. Well, if you had a $250,000 Rembrandt and it's got foxing, you can, you can bleach it and you can, paper conservator can fix that. But we hadn't started, mm -hmm. you know, so it was crazy to print on this faulty paper. So the whole, well, so he said, well, I'll find some archival paper. So they were looking, his, his people were looking for him when he died. So mm. the whole project sat for 20 some years. And two, three years ago, Rainer and Flavin, that Rainer is his daughter and Flavin his, his son, and some of the board members were in here and they were talking about needing money. Of course, there's a, a nonprofit, mm -hmm. everybody, they need money. They're, they had just had a fire. I, I don't know if that was the fire was before or after, but one of the buildings that they had just finished restoring, they hadn't rehung the art yet, oh, which wow. is really lucky. Yeah. The place burned. So they were talking about it. They weren't like singing the blues or anything, but they're just sort of saying that they needed a bunch of money. And I said, I know how you can raise some money. <laughs> Let's print these prints. Yeah. And I said, what a good idea. So I started this. They, they found uh, it was a thousand sheets. They insisted that the paper come from Korea. Yeah. And they got a thousand sheets of this paper and I printed it. So it was right at the beginning of COVID. And I spent more than two years of COVID printing these. So these are actually quite recently printed. Mm, yeah. And so which one was the cadmium red? Is yeah. it top middle? Yeah. Yeah. That's it what was I was a, thinking. It's cadmium red light. It's cadmium red light. Light, yeah. yeah. It's a color he used quite a bit in his sculpture. Mm -hmm. It was a favorite color, I guess. I mean, I... Those are my words. But. Yeah. I mean, looking at it, that kind of red, orangey, I really do associate it with minimalism, with mid-century, cleanly, like clean lines, almost Danish modern, that whole aesthetic. Yeah. I feel like that red yeah. is very present. And I wonder how much of that is just judge influence through that time period. I, I, you know, I... You know, to, to me, I mean, that sort of leads to an, another question is, what influenced him? Uh-huh. You know, Bauhaus, of course, and philosophy, studied, <clears throat> studied philosophy at Columbia. Mm -hmm. um, but what was his influence? I mean, I should know this. Yeah. And there's plenty of people we could ask if that was, like, important. I never thought of it. <laughs> but who did you influence? <laughs> but a lot of people. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I have just recently came across this idea when it comes to 
minimalism, although I've heard he didn't like that term, so maybe he didn't. He didn't. So did he have a word for what he did um, that we could use? And it wasn't maximalism. Yes, definitely. <laughs> that we could use, like, respectfully to refer to the style? I don't know. Mm. Maybe he didn't want it to be defined. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good figuring out. Mm-hmm. Just stands there. But, yeah. yeah, just sort of compositions, should we say, in the style that when work is figurative, it's always trying to create a sense of space that's not actually there, imagined space. So if you think of a landscape, it's trying to create this idea where non-figurative work works with actual space. So what's being shown here is, yeah. is the space that is there on the paper that we are supposed to interact oh, with sure. as the space on the paper. Sure. And it's, like, it's such an interesting idea because it's such a different way of perceiving an image. It's, there's an immediacy that, to it. To you, isn't that what sculpture, which he's known as, mm-hmm. isn't that what sculpture really does? It's, mm-hmm. You know, it's got a space beyond a frame that's got the space around it, so. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I... Something we can drink and talk about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he loved to drink. Oh, really? Yeah. Drinking and talking philosophy? Yeah. 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 Was he easy to work with? I liked him, mm-hmm. yes. Other people didn't feel that way, I understand. But he, when we first met, and he invited me down, well, I could tell this story. Please. Oh, okay. We met, and we kind of hung out and sort of worked on this a bit. And he said, come on down to the block and have dinner. So I went down, again, got my best cowboy shirt on, (laughs) and he was cooking. And the the dinner that he made was one big chunk of meat, (laughs) which was wonderful. And we spent the evening drinking so tall, uh which I had never had, never heard of before that. It's sort of psychedelic. <laughs> it's, oh, really? It is pretty strong. Tastes good, but it's crazy. Is and it sort of like the Southwest absinthe? Maybe so. Let's hope he don't die. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who died from uh, To lose the track, I think. Mm. Or at least it had, I think, a, a negative impact on his life. So I'll finish this story. So yeah. I'm, we're sitting at his table talking, and he was started talking about And he had done, I mean, you asked about him as a person. He was very generous to, he had three ranches south of town. And he was, I had this organization, he put together this thing called Anaya Dichinati, which was a food co-op. So there were a lot of farmers down on the river. I might have these words off a little bit. There were a lot of farmers down by the river, which is 50, 60 miles south of where we're at. And he supported them and they made cheese as well, goat cheese. So he wanted to set up a co-op for the cheese maker because they would just make it on their kitchen table. And Mm -hmm. he wanted to turn it into a, a viable thing where people could make more money. So anyways, we talked about that. And we talked about him wanting to bottle the water in Marfa. And there's a really, really nice aquifer here. I, I, I've said this to other people. I said, it's so, the water is so tasty. And a friend of mine corrected me. He said, 
good water doesn't taste. <laughs> so this water, I'm saying it was really good. I mean, it was good, but it had really essentially no taste. So anyways, he did this drawing of the, his idea for the bottle that they would use, he would use, for bottling the water. And that's the, so he did this drawing at that table after several Sotals. And he did, I mean. It's beautiful. That's a, I mean, he could really draw. I mean, he didn't render as such, but he could get ideas across with a couple of pencil marks Mm. really, really well, as well as anybody I've worked with. So he did this drawing. And I, I said, would you like me to try to make a prototype? And he said, sure. And he passed that very drawing across the table. And I took and folded it up, put it in my pocket, and woke up the next morning with a horrible hangover. <laughs> and I said, shit, I folded up a Donald Trump drawing. <laughs> but then I did make those two. I made the three of those wooden patterns there from which... We did one prototype. Well, we actually did six glass ones. And it was just a backyard glass blowing kind of deal, a friend of Valerie's. So we made those. But I, and so there were three more wooden, four, two more wooden patterns. And that's one that I, I did. Yeah, it's a gorgeous bottle. Like you could definitely see it on a fancy shelf somewhere. Yeah, but it was intended to be interlocking. So the nose of the bottle, I mean, especially if you look at the drawing closely, so the nose of the bottle goes into the tail of the bottle next to it, and then they're interlocking. So there's flutes, positive flutes, and negative indentation flutes. I see that. of the bottles and then the idea would be to use it as glass blocks sort of as like old like 1950s well actually they're they're still doing glass blocks so you would drink that and then use them to make a wall i guess that was the idea that's it never happened drink drink yourself into a a new home yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm hoping you could talk to a little bit the experience as the collaborative printer working with the artist, because you've worked with many artists. You've worked with, we spoke to some of the biggest names like Donald Judd. You've showed us an amazing Sofia Coppola that's more recent that you just did. In your experience, what's sort of the best things a printer can have in their toolkit? when they're coming to work with an artist? Is it an open mind? Is it flexibility? Is it communication? What do you think made you a successful collaborator? The three adjectives you just used are primary. They're really important. And what it is, if somebody asks me what I do, I say, I'm not being a smart ass, but I mean, I tell people also I'm a printer but what I really am is a collaborator Mm -hmm. so it's the artist is the image maker I mean I'm not an image maker I don't which is kind of interesting because when the Albuquerque show that you know about almost every and probably most of the printers you've talked with they're also image makers and I think that's a stumbling block I think you, as a matter of fact, I even heard the term, well, I can draw better than him. Well, no, well, maybe you can, but I, I don't draw. I, 
I, I, I, I find that as, 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 a, as a barrier to be making the product. I am a printer and the image maker, artist, I mean, I consider myself an artist, but it's a lowercase a, but I, I think that working with them to get to a final project or product, I guess. So it's, it, it is the artist is the artist and they sign the print. Yes. Unfortunately, in the corner somewhere is my chop, Mm -hmm. my mark. And most all printers have a chop. And and so you look and see, Oh, that's a Donald Judd. Actually he's, this is signed on the back. Now I'm on the side, now the front, but then in the other corner, the, is my symbol. Mm-hmm. Every printer, every camera printer, for sure, most printers probably that you've interviewed had a chop. And my chop, I, I, I said earlier to you, maybe off microphone, that I like to weld. Or I used, to, I mean, I used to do a lot of welding. When I was a teenager, I welded up this symbol that is back on the wall there. And I was just learning to weld. But what that symbol is, and you often, often, I often wonder, what does the chop mean, that, that printer's chop or that shop? Like Tamarind's chop is something about turning base metal into gold or something. Mm-hmm. So I've forgotten what exactly. And most all of them, I would hope, would have a, the symbolism means something. I'm sure they do. I mean, everybody designs their own chop. At Tamarind, you, you just, as, you lead, as you finish, you design a chop. And then Marge Devon actually wrote a, uh, published a book about chops. So all the chops are listed. So my chop is, I see it as a, back to the word collaboration. Our last name is Arbor, which means tree in various spellings, but it basically means tree. So it's a stylized tree with the root system of the tree. And it's a, a tree collaborates, so it's one unit, to have the roots and the upper part of the tree. And there's some saying, and I don't know where it's from, but as, as, as above, so below. I don't know where that could be Masonic. Mm-hmm. I'm not too sure. But that symbol is really what the collaboration is. Yeah. yeah. Do, do you have, sort of speaking of that theme, do you have specific advice for young artists who want to start a shop? I, we have a lot of younger listeners to the podcast and a lot of them are getting their degree and on their way and a lot of them dream about running a print shop yeah well it's not cheap (laughs) yeah you know i think you have to be inventive Uh, like i had no money when i finished hammering but as i was saying i didn't have any money but i knew how to weld so i I built that press and it's we printed the sofia Coppola on it just two months ago so you have to be inventive not only as the work, but how to get a building, how to get the equipment, how to get enough money to buy your supplies. I mean, you may have the skills, but now you need a physical thing. And I think what's nice, I don't know that it's still being done, but I think in the old days, the printers would pass down the stones. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I got I think I got a couple stones. Yeah, I definitely did. 
passed down to me from other printers. Um, and I've got 50 some stones that at some point I will pass on, if not pass down, to somebody. Mm, yeah, yeah. And I guess then speaking of the future, aside from your big 50th wedding anniversary <laughs> party, is there anything on the horizon you're particularly looking forward to or projects or happenings? Oh, yes. For sure. There's two things that I really like to see is more of the hand of the artist in the work. Like I just finished Charlene Von Heil, or not just finished, but a, a recent project is for Charlene Von Heil, who I have great re regard for. And she drew on a lithostone of these stars, and then by hand, she drew those moths on top of it. So she made a stencil, cut a stencil, with 16 moths, and then painted through the stencil, and then moved that stencil to another one of the stars prints that I, I had printed. And it was an addition of 30. <laughs> she got halfway through and she said, wait a minute, I'm doing more work than you. <laughs> but in that, and then she did by hand after she stenciled the moth's shape, she took her thumb in white ink and then made the head shape of the, each of those moths and then carved an eraser and did the actual face of the moth. So it's called the death head moth and they really exist. I think that they're, and they're very colorful. I think mainly in Costa Rica. Mm. But, so I like to see the hand of the artist more. And like I began this with a sort of a pushback about all this digital shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's there. People are doing it. People are using it. It's just not me. And that's, I'm allowed that. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I'm working on now, I'm pretty excited about is a Jacob's Ladder. It's a, well, there's a couple of definitions of a Jacob Ladder. One is something in the Bible, but, and there's a movie, I understand, it's really a scary movie, I, I've not seen it. But a Jacob's Ladder is a kid's toy where you turn the top tile, say you've got a stack of tiles that are held together with a ribbon, and you turn the top one and then it cascades down. I'm working with an artist from Brooklyn who I'm, I'm building a seven foot, you know, normally they're just little handheld guys, girls. <laughs> uh, so I, I love the idea of them. And I, I bought on eBay a number of small ones just to kind of figure them out. So I'm building a seven foot one that's going to be powered and then motion activated. So you walk by it and it'll cascade down. Mm. Uh, and the artist is a young lady from Brooklyn named Rosie Kaiser. So after I get it built, she will then decorate it, or decorate is probably not the right ad term, but she will make the imagery on mm -hmm. the tiles and then will cascade down. Beautiful. And we actually have a show lined up already, and I haven't built them. So. <laughs> <laughs> she has the show. Yeah. So that's getting back to some of your sculptural roots in Definitely. that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, We've, we've come up on our hour recording mark here, but <laughs> I would say, <laughs> thank goodness. No, but so in the caveat of saying all this digital crap, <laughs> is there a place people can find you online or the shop online or see the work? Yeah. Well, I, again... You know, what my joke says, I need a 30-year-old in the shop. I've never had an intern. 
Mm. I've worked completely by myself and my wife. Yeah. It's a lot. But, I mean, to do what you're asking really requires, for me, an intern, and I don't have them. I would like to have one. Is that is that an official request if someone's listening and they say, Definitely. I'd go to Marfa and go be an intern? Yeah. For sure. I mean, I would, uh, and you would ask early, what am I going to do with this shop after? And I don't think I answered that, but so as online presence, I do have a website and it's, I think, about 15 years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's got just images. I don't change it. It's it's okay. I mean, it's information. It's got a few images of the shop, a few, um, and it is, the title of it is, that's for the 30 by 30 centimeter project. Actually, that is the website or the, what do you call that? The URL. Fine. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 30 by 30 cm project.com. But what that is, is this 30 centimeter project that is in this room next to me or behind me. And I invited, have been inviting young artists for the most part to participate in this. And then we do a portfolio box of um, each artist. So it started out, I worked with this artist from Switzerland to sort of set up the, 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 the format for it. And we came up with six square prints in the box. And I make the box as well. And Daniel Gautin from Basel, he made six square prints. The second artist was is for, or was from Oaxaca. And she said, I can't work in a square. And I said, well, it's okay. Make it 30 by 30 centimeter. But it's a horizontal rectangle. But the paper was 30 by 30 centimeter. The second or third artist was is from Tokyo. And he said, I cannot work that small. And I said, okay. So we, I printed on an eight foot sheet of paper uh, and then it's folded in the box, put in the box. So the rule then changed, do whatever you want as long as it fits in the box. <laughs> as you did like adapt to each artist. Yes, yeah. they always wanted to break the rules, right? Artists, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, beautiful. So you can be found online there. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah. 30 by 30 centimeter project.com. And there's images and contact info. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Robert. So, this was great. I, I, I must say, I was a little like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> is my hair cold? That's <laughs> why so it's only audio. That's yeah. why I was relieved to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been great. And I look forward to hanging out in the shop a little bit off air. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good, good. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Valerie Saipos. We talk about her international travels around printmaking from Japan to Germany, food culture in Tokyo, her famous kitchen litho videos, and whether or not any of us should be drinking Coca-Cola, knowing we can use it to etch aluminum. You won't want to miss it. This episode, 
like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.